Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast, the home of pro cycling tomfoolery. On the agenda this week, we have brand new rules, same old Ghana, and a little preview of the Tour de la Provence. I am, as always, joined by my co-host, Tom. Tom, how are you? Uh, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, I'm not bad, thanks. Quite tired, because I will, as we know, watch absolutely any sport, and I've not quite recovered from staying up to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday night. Uh, but that is the American football over, and we can crack on with some uh, proper European cycling instead, I think is the plan. That's a great plan, I think. I know very little about um, the Super Bowl, but I was glad to hear that it was a Tom that won it. So uh, that's, that's a always win a for Tom us. that wins that. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think following on from our discussion with Dan last week, it's good to see the aerodynamics uh, are back making headlines. Um, Let's start with those new UCI rules then. The sock length vigilante, uh, the UCI, have announced a number of rules, uh, including uh, tighter restrictions on littering, barriers being put in 300 metres before the line and 100 metres after the line, uh, as well as perhaps the headline rule, which is the ban on the super tuck. Tom, straight off the bat, where do you stand on the super tuck ban? Well, you know what? I have been reading into it all day, reading the opinions of various riders, some of whom are quite outspoken and some of whom have tried to remain quite diplomatic. And I'm honestly, I think I'm on the fence. I really can see both sides. Uh, I get from a safety perspective why the UCI want to enforce it and why the riders are probably seen as role models and they don't want uh, non-professionals, young children attempting to ride their bikes like that. But at the same time, these guys are professionals. They know what they're doing. And <laughs> to be honest, if you're trying to win a race and you think that's the most comfortable way to, uh, you know, make yourself aerodynamic and get down a mountain or what, what time, whatever you want to do, then do it. This is the highest level of the sport. And for me, anything should go really. Yeah. I think one of the riders that was quite outspoken on Twitter about this was Dan Martin, who tweeted saying, I think the UCI should be applauded for being proactive for once. Too often rules are implemented reacting to serious injuries or worse. Riding helmetless is perfectly safe until you crash and hit your head. Um, I think, yeah, it's the, the issue that a lot of riders are saying is that it kind of rules out breakaways or at least escapees staying away off the front because it doesn't give them that aero advantage. When I think of the Super Tuck, it reminds me of kind of Froome in that 2016 tour when he went over the Parasude and then descended at about 90 kilometers an hour with his chest kind of hanging over the handlebars, pedaling at the same time. Um, I think, obviously, this isn't just going to mean that everybody's going to ride in the drops the entire 200 kilometers of a stage. They will find new ways around it. And it might also bring about perhaps some interesting changes in bike technology, uh, perhaps narrower handlebars or something like that, just so the riders can keep a more aero position without getting fined however many Swiss francs the UCI decide to brandish on this one. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. They obviously will find ways around it pretty quickly. And I thought it was actually interesting that um, Dan, who we did spoke, speak to last week, he was um, he put on Twitter earlier in the week saying that, you know, research that he's done shows that there might not necessarily be the aerodynamic advantage that people think there is anyway. Um, I know, obviously, anyone who's listened to last week's episode know how he, he talked about this sort of, you know, marriage of the body and the bike and how while this 
maybe more aerodynamic in some ways, you know, maybe it affects other things and puts other things out of balance. So maybe it evens out somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to say as well that where it makes you think of Chris Froome, uh, I will always be reminded of Cadell Evans, uh, the year he won the tour, flying down the Galibier, chasing down Andy Schleck, uh, which is, for me is one of my favorite rides ever. So I'd be very disappointed to see, uh, to see things like that go. Well, it's, it's not even just the super tuck that's gone. It's the, the puppy paws position as well. It's that classic, you know, the TT position where you, you, yeah. you rest your forearms on the handlebars. I was very surprised to see that one go. To be well, honest. that's it. And I think, to be honest, um, it puts at a disadvantage uh, the better bike handlers who can put themselves in positions like this um, because it is always those guys who have maybe a mountain biking or a cyclocross sort of background that uh, you're more likely to see in positions like this or people who really work at their bike handling skills to gain extra time wherever they can through, uh, well, innovations like this. Um, and I think it really levels the playing field and in doing so probably plays into the hands of those who aren't as confident on their bikes. Absolutely. And uh, an interesting thing is that what hasn't officially been banned, but I imagine if people do start doing it, it'll be quite quick before they get the ban in, is the what is known as the Pantani position. Do you know what the Pantani position is, Tom? Uh, I don't. I hope it involves wearing a bandana. It's not that. <laughs> it's where basically you kind of dangle your backside over the back wheel Okay, Rather I didn't know that was. The, I have seen that before. I didn't know it was the Pantani position. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it in the Pro Peloton for well since Pantani kind of made it famous. But that is surely a lot more dangerous. I mean, you have Absolutely. no handling with that. Yeah, <laughs> I, and it just shifts the center of gravity completely the wrong way. Yeah, imagine trying to take a corner with your well, with, well, with your backside over the back. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. Obviously, this only applies to UCI races. So if you or I or whoever else wants to go out on a Sunday and go around the hills of Epping Forest, then you're more than welcome to, you know, rest your forearms on the handlebars. You're not going to get a, a telling off from uh, whoever the UCI president is. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we'll see you around Stratford every Sunday, practicing your aero position. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's only so aero you can be, man. Um, <laughs> also, it's, it's worth noting that these rules are to be implemented on April the 1st. So for all we know, this could just be a long-winded prank. I didn't, I didn't know that, but that is... Uh, well, for the UCI, I know um, April Fool's Day is a very English thing, isn't it? So uh, in Spain, I can't remember what day it's on, but they do something different. Uh, well, the UCI is, UCI is what, French or Swiss? The name's French, but they could be Swiss. Yeah, I wouldn't know. Yeah. You have the Poisson d'Avril in French, which is the same thing, so it could be. The April fish. The April fish, exactly. <laughs> um, let's move on from rules and have a look back to what was the first stage racing of, of this year that we've seen. The Etoile de Bessege. Tom, what did you make of that race? Uh, <clears throat> I have to confess, I didn't watch much of it live. I've done a lot of catching up since. But there were a few things that I was uh, quite pleased to see. Firstly, stage one. Uh, Brian Cockard uh, keeps up his immaculate record of finishing seventh in every race he's ever competed in. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to see that that is going to be an ongoing thing this season as well. Although I think he did actually, uh, he did get up to the heady heights of sixth later on in the race and another and stage four, I think. He was up there yeah. in the GC at the end. I was like, you've yeah. no right to be here, Cockard. Good for him. Um, 
Philippe Gilbert showing some good early season form in his quest for Milan San Remo. That was, I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> it just, these are just not, when you look at that race, these are just not the takeaways people are taking away from it. And I love it. I love how you've watched it. <laughs> you're focusing on Cockard and Gilbert. Well, I am going to move on to Tim Wellens as well and just basically say that I like Tim Wellens. It's nice to see him win races. He's just a man who loves riding his bike and I'm quite happy to see him win some races. This is what I think minds are changing about Tim Wellens at the moment because I think people have him down as this breakaway merchant who is Thomas against mate and they go off the front sometimes. He is an incredible tactician in terms of his riding. He knows exactly when to go. He can stay away. He's powerful. Mm. But I think people need to give him a bit more credibility for, uh, for what he's doing at the moment. He's, he's finding incredible form. And last season and this season, his form was unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'd rather talk about him than Philippe Ghana winning more time trials, which I'm sure is what you're going to mention now as the main takeaway from the race. Yeah, well, I, to be honest, my main takeaway was that I'd never heard of this race before. The riders raced it like it was a monument at times. Uh, it was good to see Ineos sticking by their word of racing in a more exciting way this season. They had Egan Bernal in a breakaway at one point. <laughs> um, and you've got obviously Ghana with that monstrous stage win where uh, I think even the team car was struggling to keep up with him. And then the TT, which I don't want to talk about too much because I did categorically say on Twitter that he wouldn't win. Uh, not only did he win the time trial, he set a course record on the time trial. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to keep you away from our social media from now on. There's, uh, there's too um, much that's gone on the record that has been disproven pretty quickly. Yeah, and I, I like to pass it off as being our joint opinion as well. So I'm kind of dragging your reputation through the dirt a bit. No, it's all right. Whenever I see something that I really disagree with, I reply from my own Twitter account. So. <laughs> well, fortunately, I can keep tweeting about France because our next stage race... It's down in the south, the Tour de la Provence, down in the, uh, the picturesque purple fields of Provence. Not a race that I know very well. I remember Quintana taking an incredible stage win on the Vontu last year. It's quite a nice profile of this, this, this stage race. It's what, four stages, goes through some nice cities, and then obviously that main stage up Vontu on stage three. Tom, what are your initial impressions? Yeah, as you said, it's, it's a lovely region um you've got to be in the uh, the southern half of france for me for it to be worth it apart from paris roubaix and um yeah there's that final stage up to is it chalet right now it's, it's called i think yeah it's i think it's the penultimate sort of halfway, stage it's halfway up the Vontu, and i think it was um in the tour a couple of years ago a few years ago now it could be when it's too windy at the top of the Vontu, they have to uh, move the finish down to there as well so it has been seen in the grand tours before as well um so yeah, it's an interesting little race. Uh, final stage on Valentine's Day, which will be, I'm sure, have your heart fluttering watching Julian Alaphilippe in his first race back in France in the rainbow jersey. Yeah, I'm excited to see see Julian there. I mean, this is this the start list for this race is an absolute smorgasbord of big hitters. The Koenig got, quick step have turned up with everyone apart from Remco, and that's only because he's injured. I know you've got Alaphilippe, you've got. Uh, Vlasov, Demar, Bernal, Philippe Gilbert, Enrique Mass, Fabio Aru, Tim Wellens. Most importantly, however, for the podcast, we have Thomas Champion starting his Neo Pro season with Cofidis. So we'll see if he's man- he manages to take the overall in his first ever 
pro race with uh, with Cofidis. But um, no, I think this race is going to be a, a beautiful amuse-bouche for what we're going to see in July at the Tour. Because obviously we've got the double ascent of Vontu. So a lot of the riders will be using this as an opportunity to kind of test form on those roads at those, you know, at those percentages and see how the, how they, how the legs feel. It will. And I mean, there's a lot of riders who obviously will come into this straight from the Etoile de Bessage that we just talked about because they're both taking place extremely close to each other. Um, <clears throat> but Philippe in particular, obviously as the world champion, he would normally start his season in South America. And with all those races being cancelled, he's obviously not the only one. This is the season opener for a lot of guys. So it'll be a good, uh, good gauge of form for quite a few of them. It's also Philippe's first race since, um, since breaking his wrist in Flanders last year. Is it? Yeah, it will be. That's a good mm-hmm. point. I don't know if he can take the overrule. Um, I don't know if that's what Dakota Quickset will be going for. He'll probably take one of the, he'll probably take the second stage would be my guess. Um, I mean, if I were him, I'd be treating it as, you know, just extended training rides and getting ready for the classics when they come. Yeah. Um, I think the first stage has got Arno Demar written all over it. I think whoever wins up to Chalet Reynard on the Vontu will probably go on to win the whole thing. Um, I know that's what Quintana did last season. I think he set a course record actually for a, the ascent up to Chalet Reynard, he absolutely put the hammer down. Um, if you haven't seen it, look up that stage on YouTube and just watch Quintana's methodical climbing on that. It's unbelievable. Um, he's not racing this year, but you have some really good climbers in Vlasov who won the Mont Ventoux de Nivelle Challenge last year. So he knows the mountain well. That's uh, you've race. got both of the Haradas riding it. Who, who I know has, Jesus Harada has won the Mont Ventoux the Nivelle Challenge before, hasn't he? Yeah, I know they both like the Ventoux. You um, will remember that because he smashed Roman Bardet. No, we don't Bardet, talk... Bardet finished second. <laughs> was that... Yeah, that was, wasn't it? Yeah. Ah, oh, I'd managed to erase that one from my mind, along with the uh, the more famous occasion where Roman Bardet finished second in Innsbruck. We won't talk about that one. But that one is banned from uh, from being spoken about. Tom, I think, as we know on this podcast, the best way to preview a race is with an incredibly last-minute and badly thought-out quiz that I've prepared. Four questions, a mixture of knowledge of Provence and knowledge of the race, the Tour de la Provence. I'm going to set the pass mark at two. 50%, um, that's, a, that's a... Yeah, I'd pass be happy. Mark. And yet, f- neither of these are subjects that I'm particularly confident on. <laughs> right, we'll jump straight in. The first question... 88% of wines produced in Provence are which colour? That has to be red. Incorrect. Incorrect. Hmm. Yes, again? Um, well, I mean, I'd be very, very shocked if it's rosé, so I'm going to go with white. <laughs> Incorrect. Do you want to guess again? Is it rosé? It's rosé. <laughs> really? 88% of the wines produced in Provence That's are rosé. I know. Isn't Chateau Neuf du Pape from around there? No, that's down near uh, well, Avignon somewhere, which I thought was Provence, to be honest. Oh, yeah, it could be because Pat yeah. means Pope in French Pope. and Avignon yeah. is the city of the Popes. Yeah, the Avignon papacy. I got thrown out of the um, Palais de Pape in Avignon when I was younger for messing around with my brother. What were you doing? <laughs> just, I don't know, we were really young, just running about and making a, no- making a nuisance of ourselves, basically. Drank too much uh, Fanta Citron. Yeah, well, it definitely wasn't Chateau Neuf du Pape at age six or whatever it was. So, 
Um, question two. The DEPA for stage two shares its name with the French word for black current. What is the oh. name of the town? See, I don't know it, but I know I should know it because I have a degree in French. <laughs> did uh, the black current not come you. up very much? No, and then, unless it's courant noir, then I'm... <laughs> no, we use this word in English as well. For black current? Yeah. Is it like, it's not going to be, what would I call it? Berry? No. Ribena? Uh, berry. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it begins with a C. Um, no, I'm not going to get it. Cassis. Ah. Oh. Oh, it's simple, isn't it? Once you've got it laid yeah. down in front of you. Yeah. Right, that's the end of the geography questions now. Um, yeah, see, those are the two I would be more confident on the cycling questions. I'm not sure. Oh, no, I've realised this one's a kind of geography one as well. Um, Provence is famous for the Mistral wind, which blows off the Med up to the northwest. Yeah. What is the record wind speed in kilometres per hour recorded at the summit of Mont Ventoux. Now, you mentioned that it is habitual for them to cut the stage short on Mont Ventoux because of the wind at the top. Um, Chalet-Rena is two-thirds of the way up. It's six kilometres down from the summit. Um, I've, got, I've got some options for you. Is it A, 180 kilometres an hour, B, 260 kilometres an hour, or C, 320 kilometres an hour? See... <sighs> A lot of people think that it's called Mont Ventoux because it's really windy, but that, and Ventoux would be French for windy. But I have always been told that's not actually the case. It's a complete coincidence. And the etymology comes from some sort of ancient pre-French language name for the region. Um, I should definitely know this because I've recently read Jeremy Whittle's Ventoux book, and it definitely, definitely has a bit about the name, uh, and I cannot remember it. Um, the wind speeds, though. Well, I'll, I'll learn it and I'll tell you when we get to doing we're previewing the Vontu for the Tour de France. Looking forward to that. I'm just trying to convert these wind speeds into miles an hour so I can gauge them a little bit better. I know 320k is 200 miles an hour, and that is really fast. So, um, so essentially, your options are fast, really fast, or really, really fast. I don't think it's 320k. What was the middle option? 260k. Right, which is about. 160 miles an hour i'll go with that i'll go with that yeah 260k yeah that's incorrect oh it's not faster than that is it it's not the fastest one it's the fastest one that 320 kilometers an hour um, 100 mile an hour wins it's madness i was looking on the the wikipedia page uh for the mistral describes it as a cold and violent wind in the winter so uh these guys are going up in mid-feb i hope they got their jackets yeah. ready you love those winds coming in off the, uh, off the med, though, don't you? Creating, um, there's no more exciting phenomenon in road racing than echelons. All you want is a crosswind and a big mistral coming off the med. Always gives you, when you've got a, a bunch sprint coming into Montpellier or Marseille or somewhere, it's brilliant. Maybe not at the top of Vontu, just when they're already knackered. Pick them up, lift them off the mountain. No, you need them, them on a the pan-flat coastal road. Yeah, exactly. Really yeah. rip up the peloton. Um, Question four, you have got zero so far. <laughs> so I've already and not passed. This is the final question. <laughs> um, what is unique about the Tour de la Provence leader's jersey? 
Um, it's, I don't know, it's made of gold. Correct. Oh, really? No, it's not. Obviously, it's no. not made of gold. <laughs> um, it is multicolored. It is in the style of a kind of Piet Mondrian painting. The it's like an it's an homage to the old Lavie Claire kits. I think I read online, and I'm not sure if I believe this. It is a nod to business tycoon Bernard Tapier, who started the Lavie Claire team in the 80s and plays a big role in the race's organisation. Um, but it's got like red panels, blue panel, yellow panel, white panel, different colour sleeves. It's a very multicoloured jersey. Naira Quintana looked dashing in it last year and I'm excited to see who gets to don it on the top step of the podium this year. Yeah, so am I. Very excited. Um, should be a good race with, a, you know, a big summit finish. Always good, isn't it? Even if it's in February. Gives us good Valentine's Day plans as well to watch the, uh, to that come oh, I currently nice. have no other Valentine's Day plans, so yeah, that would be fine. <laughs> um, Tom, where can they see the drivel that we post online? regarding the Tour de la Provence. They can see the drivel that you post online on Twitter and Instagram at TTPDCST, which is TT Podcast with all the vowels taken out. And they might even get <coughs> the odd contribution from me <laughs> when I'm not watching American football. Cool, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll grace us with some of your, your wise words online. Um, bit of a short episode today, I think. There's not been too much to talk about. These are not usually the most talked about races, so we're excited when the, the kind of spring classic starts to get really into the racing then. We have um, some more exciting things planned, uh, some more interviews planned, so hopefully you know, we'll get those recorded and out in due course. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check us out on social media, as Tom said, and we will speak to you soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks very much, everyone. <laughs>